0: The Guardian.
1: Guardian podcasts are partnered with Audible.co.uk. For a free download, be sure to check out Guardian.co.uk slash Audible, where Guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free. See the page for more details.
2: Mark Thompson will be a tough act to follow, but it's a privilege to be asked to lead the greatest broadcasting
3: organisation in the world. Is it a woman? Is it a regulator? Is it an unidentified mystery outside candidate? No, it's uh, George Embersole, the new £450,000 man at the top of the BBC. We focus our x-ray vision on the appointment and ask, is it super, man? (laughs) Also on this week's podcast...
4: All new technology starts off costing a lot. Will I be surprised in a couple of years' time if products are £99 in the shops? No.
3: Lord Sugar launches UView, but will you be viewing it? Losses grow at the publisher of The Independent, and the BBC beats ITV 6 1 in the Euro 2012 final. But did ITV deserve better? This is Media Talk from The Guardian. I will be joined later by Vicky Frost and Martin Kellner, but here with me for the first part of the show are Dan Saber, The Guardian's head of media and tech, and Ollie Mann, one half of the Sony Awareness podcast. Answer me this. Welcome both. Hello. We start, where else, with George Entwistle's appointment as the next Director General of the BBC, the former Newsnight editor, now controller of BBC Vision, beat Caroline Thompson, the BBC's Chief Operating Officer, and Ed Richards, Chief Executive of media regulator Ofcom, to the job. Let's hear from the man who in two months' time will take over from Mark Thompson as the most powerful executive in British broadcasting.
2: I'm very pleased that the Chairman and the Trustees think I'm the right person for the job. Mark Thompson will be a tough act to follow but it's a privilege to be asked to lead the greatest broadcasting organization in the world and it's a privilege to be given the chance to continue to serve our audiences in this new job as i have in my previous ones thank you
3: dan disappointingly george wasn't taking questions uh, the bbc is all about transparency these days but as uh, as beginnings go this one was slightly more opaque
1: yeah a bit of a damp squib of a start uh look uh, we don't even know is george Anderson brilliant or is he a bit of a bit grey and colourless. Has he sort of risen without trace or is he kind of a, you know, know, superb man who was a sort of fantastically sort of aggressive sort of editor of Newsnight uh, and is the right man for the job? I just don't think we know. I don't think we have a clear sense of him and we certainly didn't get a clear sense of him on day one where I think you went down to what was supposedly a press conference but ended up him sort of saying a few bland words and then disappearing and there was an email he sent to staff which is equally bland and you won't hear much from me for the next few months while i work out what to do and i thought it's really bizarre because what what had only just happened they'd sort of had an hour and a half interview with sort of four or five BBC trustees in which they had all the candidates asked to make, as we understand it, a 15-minute pitch about what they, how they wanted to change the BBC and their vision for it. So it wasn't like it was far from his mind. I mean, so it's too soon to be bearish or in any way negative about the new director-general, although I have to say the press reaction was pretty sort of... Severe to gloomy, you know, elsewhere, was, and I think the Telegraph already calling for the abolition of the license fee, which is sort of, you know, I mean, fast, fast work for George to lose the support of the Telegraph on day zero.
3: It was uh, it was jubilee centric, Ollie, uh, because of course uh, G- George was closely. I call him George because I've struggled to pronounce his surname now. Maybe I'll give it one more go. Entwistle was, was closely if involved. If you're going to the... call
2: him anything, could you call him what the male calls him, which is the jumper-wearing Entwistle? The jumper-wearing <laughs> <laughs> Entwistle. That's a great description. I don't
1: description. think I've ever seen him wear a jumper either, but there we are.
2: I think it's difficult for him to make any kind of bold statement whilst Mark Thompson's still in place, because inevitably he's sort of going to be criticising his control of the BBC, isn't he? And that is tricky. Um, so I think in a way he did the right thing by turning around and, and walking off from the press conference. He just did it a little bit abruptly. And unfortunately, because of the uh, digital world that we now live in, that he's going to have to grapple with at, uh, as head of the BBC. Uh, the video everyone was looking at was of him walking away rather than him making a statement. I think that was the issue.
3: There was actually an audible sort of sigh, I don't know was a sigh or a gasp <laughs> or a sort of general sort of just uh, uh, ex- exhale of disappointment as he disappeared. Um,
1: communications is absolutely the heart of the DG's job, you know, and this is a job where you have to stand up and be counted, you have to negotiate in public, you have to defend yourself in front of the media, in front of MPs uh, you have do all these things so how you perform in public is is absolutely critical if not the most important aspect actually I think to being Director General and so that was just, it just didn't quite strike the right note what he did.
3: Well dealing with the media was one point addressed by former BBC One controller Lorraine Hegesy who I spoke to earlier. Here's what she had to say
5: Well I I think it was a good appointment. I think it's good to give it to somebody who has been in the BBC for their whole career. The BBC is a bit of a strange animal and sometimes people coming in from outside don't quite get it and there won't this way be an adjustment period george will be completely on top of all the issues i mean obviously what he won't have is that outside perspective of having worked outside the bbc but i think he's somebody who's very interested in all sorts of ideas and new trends and what have you so he, you know he's very well read he's very engaged in the outside world as anybody who works in news and current affairs naturally is so i'm not sure that will be such a drawback for him
3: well you mentioned the lack of outside experience there because of course mark thompson was uh, was chief executive of channel four and um Um, George Amisle did work at Haymarket magazines, but that was a a long time ago, back in the 1980s. How important is that outside experience, do you think, and how much is he going to miss it?
5: I, I don't think it's critical. I really don't. I think, in fact, there could be some bear traps for somebody coming in from outside. You know, sometimes you just don't understand the complex editorial procedures of the BBC. You don't understand the nuances of the way things will play publicly. So things that you can do at a commercial broadcaster, you just can't do at the BBC and get away with them. It's a very sophisticated job in terms of the politics that you have to handle. And I'm just relieved that they didn't go for somebody who was totally new media, <laughs> if you see what I mean, thinking that that's the future, because still the mainstay of the BBC is broadcast. Casting and is its main networks both on radio and TV and digital will play an increasingly important role but it will be very dependent on the content that's produced for those networks.
3: You've touched on the sort of the breadth of the role and the scale of the challenges ahead but do you agree there's been sort of some criticism that perhaps George having only been in charge of BBC Vision for just over a year is maybe sort of untested at the highest level. Do you have any sympathy with that?
5: I do but I think you're either up for the job or you're not and I suppose the alternative would have been to see him as a DG in waiting, but if the next DG did another eight years, as Mark Thompson did, then George would miss his opportunity. They seem to have quite a rigorous recruitment process, and it was a unanimous appointment, so he must have impressed Chris Patton and the rest of the trust, and convinced them that he was suitable for the job. Uh,
3: How disappointed were you that we we haven't got our first uh, female DG?
5: Well, it would, been lovely to have a woman it's about time that we had a woman running one of the major broadcasters there still hasn't been a woman chief exec of channel 4 a woman chief exec of um, ITV so you know that would be a good thing but on the other hand you've always got to go for the best person for the job and I don't think any woman would want the job feeling oh well they just gave it to me because I was a woman you'd have to be the best person.
3: George is a man who sort of traditionally avoided the spotlight. He's been fairly low profile, but I think you can tell by the, uh, the amount of attention that's already been paid to his role in the BBC's Diamond Jubilee coverage. It's, it's, a, it's a taster of the sort of thing he can expect. That, that's something he's got to get used to quite quickly. And I guess you had your own experience of that when you were in charge of BBC One a bit. Not to do with the Jubilee, of course, but uh, doubtless in other respects.
5: Exactly. You suddenly find yourself plunged into the spotlight. I mean, the BBC has extremely good press and communications Team. So I'm sure they will be schooling George and, you know, giving him training and how to deal with interviews and press conferences and all those things. And, you know, it is a minefield. You know, what I learned was it's usually the off guard comments you make when you think the interview is over that end up being the headline. So you just have to learn not to make those off the cuff. Um, remarks the truth is you are never off duty nothing you say is off the record you will have to give a lot of speeches you will have to give a lot of interviews you will have to appear in front of select committees and do all those kind of public profile type events and you get better at them the more you do them
3: and just finally Lorraine I'm I'm looking for that off the cuff final comment of course here but uh, (laughs) what's the what's the biggest challenge you faces or if if you like what advice would you give and take one of those
5: I would say be your own person and don't get too defensive. It's very easy for the BBC to be on the back foot. The BBC is the most amazing broadcast organization. Um, it makes lots of wonderful programs. You cannot broadcast all those hours every single day of the year without occasionally tripping up. And you know, just accept that occasionally you'll make mistakes and occasionally people will make mistakes and everybody is fallible it's very easy for the BBC to suddenly put a whole load of rules in place to stop something happening that's only happened once and will probably never happen again. And I've already read that George is, you know, proposing to simplify processes. And I think simplification is the order of the day.
3: Dan, it's one point I put to Lorraine there in that uh, George has been in the uh, vision job for about 15 months now. And the, the suggestion from his critics that uh, he's untested at the highest level and that uh, He's maybe not as suited as Caroline Thompson or indeed Ed Richards to the to, to the big task which lies ahead, which is the renewal of the uh, the BBC's uh, royal charter come 2017.
1: Uh, look, I think he's a little bit uh, on the regulatory side. That's right. I think it's sort of unproven. Let's see what he can do. I mean, I don't think it's sort of too complicated. will be you know the BBC's got no shortage of good advisers on. On policy, on, on, on lobbying and government relations. So I think he'd have no shortage of good advice on how to sort of work his way through the Royal Charter. I think Caroline Thompson Ed Richards, well, clearly, that they were strong, both. I think, obviously, stronger in that area. But, you know, you know you've, got to, you've got to make a decision looking at the sort of the total requirements for the candidate. I think there's sort of two other questions, I think, with George, George Ennis or two other sort of areas to touch. And one of them is he doesn't have, he's a BBC lifer, so he doesn't have any sort of – he doesn't really have any commercial experience to speak of. Now, it's not a commercial job. Uh, running the b b c so yes he's got he 's got it sort of you know b b c sort of going through his blood, and I think having an emotional understanding of the importance of the organization is vital but i you 've got to sort of wonder about whether he has a good grip, whether he have a good firm grip about, I do the BBC's market impact on rivals and some of the commercial decisions the corporation's got to take, I think, which are sort of allied, I think, to technological decisions. I mean, they've made really made a sort of come on to UView, I think, later on in the programme, but but a sort of you know UView's turned into being sort of a you know a right old sort of mess of scrambled eggs, and that's I think partly through to sort of over ambitious. Uh, an overambitious approach by the B uh, standard setting by the B trying to do too many things with technology, and that's where things can go wrong. I think the last area that, J- that Entressel clearly had was that he had the sort of he has the sort of programming making and commissioning experience, and in that sense, he absolutely stands for traditional BBC values. What we're interesting, I think, we're going to hear a lot more about uh, George's time at Newsnight, and I think that will become a sort of interesting area of anecdotes and you know, that period that he edited the programme in t- two thousand and one and two thousand and four. Uh, what was the phrase that I think sort of doing the rounds? How we Going to um, screw the government today? Is that sort of appropriate for a family podcast? Well, we can John, go further uh,
3: than that. I think this was from Michael Crick, who was the uh, the pregan 's former political uh, correspondent now now at Channel Four News, and he said he could uh, he said this in his blog a, a few months ago. He said he could uh, vivid, vividly recall uh, Emerson saying that uh, our job every day was to come in and ask ourselves. How can we fuck the government today, uh, which he was keen to point out wasn't necessarily a reference to the, well, at the time it was the Blair government, I think, but uh, but uh, any government, anyone in power, uh, he, he saw of is his job to, uh, you know, not take down, but, you know, ask questions of uh, rigorous questions.
1: I think it's a nice quote to set against the sort of accusations that he's a bit colourless and a bit bland. I think that'll be quite interesting, and it, it suggests that there is a beating heart of a journalist uh, in him. For me, emotionally, that bodes well.
2: He is a very, very discreet person to be around. I used to work at the Culture Show uh, after he left, but it, you know he created the show and you know it still worked pretty much in his image for the first year or so that I was there. And he even came to a couple of our rap parties and you don't notice that he's there. I mean, I met him once or twice... And sort of, I mean, it's ridiculous because he was so much more senior than I. I was a researcher, but I was the one kind of not remembering him because he's such a discreet person and so quiet. But I think that's a really useful skill, actually, as well. I mean, I agree that it's not great when he's making big public speeches that he's not coming across as the most charismatic person. But on the other hand, I think he might actually sort of get loud when he really needs to and the rest of the time do some proper thinking about what should be done. I think what Lorraine Hegesy was alluding to there quite obliquely about him simplifying certain things, uh, for me, as someone who works in entertainment, is relevant because I do think uh, that the BBC creatively and comedy and entertainment, which isn't the priority, I understand he's from a news and current affairs background and that's important, but in those areas it's still in the shadow of Brand and Ross and the fallout from that uh, and all of the sort of trust forms you had to fill in and you know all of the checks and compliance and obviously to an extent that was necessary at the time to appease the tabloids basically, but I do think now that there's a director general, he should take the opportunity at some point in his first year to make a speech about how, in comedy and entertainment particularly, it's really important to take risks and be creative and do things that do piss people off. Uh, I think that's been missing from a lot of the BBC output, the big comedy stuff, you know, it's still Graham Norton and Mock the Week and Russell Howard and you know, maybe Mrs Brown is actually quite adventurous for a family show, but it's certainly not cutting edge, and I feel like uh, it's about time that our public service broadcaster did something in the area of entertainment to equal some of the risks that ITV and Channel Four have been taking recently.
3: And just finally on this, Dan, where does this whole process leave Ed Richards, the Ofcom chief exec, who we understand was in to apply for the role, and now well, is he left in a difficult position?
1: I think this doesn't leave him in a good position. He won't th- th- thank me for saying this, but I think he's pretty much sort of handed in his notice at Ofcom. I, look, I'm sure he won't see it that way. I'm sure he'll do. You know, I'm sure he'll carry on, but. You know, you very publicly signal that you're prepared to go to another job. Okay, sort of, you know, very compelling job. You know, you've been sort of seduced into the process by the chairman or by the headhunters or some some combination of so you sort of he's put himself you know, on the line, but he's now got to go back and, you know, lead decisions, you know, there's a whole sort of fit and proper review around Sky, which he hasn't been participating in, and maybe he won't now be able to rejoin, but it's an incredibly sensitive set of decisions. He'll have future decisions to make occasionally about the BBC, of course, Uh, uh, and again, Ed's a rational, reasonable man, his regulator's been sort of rational and reasonable, sometimes at the point of dullness over 900 pages, but... I think he's sort of saying, you know, he's on his way out, and he's, you know, and he's sort of shown some sympathy with one particular organisation. I think that's hard to, that'll be hard for him to sort of play down.
3: Okay, well we'll leave it there. Thanks very much. We turn now to this week's other media news. It's been a long time coming, but Lord Sugar this week unveiled the internet enhanced TV service that he says could have the same impact on British broadcasting as B Sky B. No, it's not the style file. That was something to do with inventor Tom off The Apprentice. But UView, which will be initially priced at £299 when the set-top boxes hit the shelves just ahead of the Olympics. Ollie, it's uh, it's tempting to say that the scale of the ambition is matched only by the price tag. <laughs> yeah, £299, I think, is, unfortunately,
2: uh, I just have to say, it's the wrong price. I mean, it should be £100 less than that. I mean... That, that puts it on a par with getting BT Vision for a year or something, which, you know, the point, like Freeview, is that it should be the budget option. But as a service, I'm not going to join the dawn chorus of everyone on the on the internet saying this is a complete waste of time and this is technology from three years ago. Because I, I think people who tweet and blog and uh, use their PVRs forget that most people still don't. And I do think there is a market for the massive mainstream for everyone's mum and dad that is still there. People who aren't going to use a PlayStation to watch iPlayer that is still there for people to have internet connected tellies. Uh, And I actually think that as for what I've seen of the UVU interface, it looks pretty good. So I don't think it's a complete waste of time. And I, I do think some of the people that talk about it being technology from two years ago, in a world where Jeremy Hunt is still talking about local TV, which is obviously never going to happen, and DAB is still supposed to be exciting when everyone's using internet radio and podcasts for the last 10 years, I think actually, <laughs> in that, by that yardstick, it actually is a progression for a lot of people, and with the right marketing, like Freeview, people will actually give it a go. So I'm, I'm not that pessimistic about it, but the price tag, yeah, it's a bit eye-watering.
3: I like that. Not a complete waste of time, they can... They can... <laughs> They can stick that on top of the box Seal uh, of approval, Lord Sugar. What's the apart from it? What, what's the what's the USP, Dan? What, where, where do you think where, where's the gap in the market? between people, I, I'm struggling to see it between Freeview, Sky, Virgin, the iPlayer, on your laptop.
1: There's too much. I think that there's too much stuff going on, too many platforms, or too too many services in the market. And I think Ollie absolutely sort of hit the nail on the head because what's needed is some sort of cut you know what's needed is some sort of you know cut price kind of pvr slash kind of internet tv type product but it's got to be a price for the mass market but it's got to be at a price point well not well well south of 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 what's being talked about i mean i thought you know 99 pound 99 pound 149 pounds is really the sort of level that you're looking at and 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 i think you've got you, you know you've got a slightly confusing increasingly confusing ecology just on the sort of on on the on the free side of it, you've got you know you've got Freeview, you've now got Uview, and you've clearly, and you've still got free free sat floating around there. So I mean, all that should be all that should be sort of rationalised at the very least. Uh, and then, of course, yes, you've got the pay propositions. With now you've got BT Vision, uh, 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 or in a year's time, you've got BT Vision beefing up his offering with with Premier League uh, and probably some other rights too. So. Look, I think consumers can navigate these marketplaces. They're not they're nothing like a sort of as, as daft as sort of, you know, some critics would say. But but what it will mean is that someone in all that mix will, will get squeezed, and that could be you view if the price point remains high uh, in an environment where people will either get freeview or you know or or Sky slash Virgin.
2: But the, the thing is, the smart TVs which have got internet connections, you know, people have been talking about how those are the next upgrade. You know, next time you buy a TV, uh, it'll have apps on it that allow you to watch iPlayer and all the rest of it. And they sort of neglect to mention that those cost seven hundred pounds and we're in a recession and people aren't buying those. So I, I really do think there is a market there for the, majority, for the majority, for the kind of people who went to Mail Online when they launched that. You know, I mean, the Daily Mail didn't have a website for 10 years when it should have had a decent website and then suddenly came out with this site that's become the number one newspaper site. I, I do think if you do it right for the mainstream that there is a market there. But yes, I agree, the price, <laughs> the
3: price just isn't right, is it? Well, plenty more on UV to come, no doubt, and let's hope it hits the shops uh, by the Olympics. On to newspapers now, and a rather different tack. The company, controlled by Evgeny Lebedev, home to the Independent, Evening Standard and the I, reported a 22.5% increase in pre-tax losses uh, in the year to October last year. Dan, the, the target for the Indy under its former owners was always break-even. What do the latest figures tell us about the direction the papers are heading in?
1: He's telling us it's difficult. Well, let's take him in turn. I think the standard's made some progress. I think it's losing about $9 million in, the, in the accounts, I think it was.
3: Down from $20 last year before,
1: yeah. Exactly so. And and that was sort of the kind of levels that, at which associate newspapers were sort of you know, were, were sort of, you know, given up and just didn't think they could quite get the standard to a profit. So, look, we all know the standard's done well from going free, Uh, It's still it's a a success to Steam. Editorial quality has not been compromised. So I think a lot of great things to say about the standard. I think the trouble is the hard part is it's still making a loss. You know I think I'm sure the situation will be better in Olympics year, but Olympics advertising has not been the sort of standout experience that everyone hoped for. So you know in and of itself, I think we've heard some time that the standard's on the verge of breaking even, and it looks like that's going to be some way away. Now I think there's a more complex set of questions around the Independent and the I. Now look the I you know, has launched and done fairly well, um, a couple of hundred, thousand, just over sort of 200,000 sales. It's encouraging. Well, I think for a 20p newspaper, you'd, you, uh, I'm sure they'd be happier if it was three, four, 500,000. But look, they've got they've got the audience they've got. Uh, although it uses the same journalists as the in India, I'm not sure the sort of the buyers are the same group of people. So, you know, I wonder how closely allied those products sort of need to be. Uh, you know, I guess for the independent itself, You know, fantastic newspaper, fantastic values, fantastic journalists, but this is a shrinking market. We're all shrinking and we're all losing money. And I think you'll see – I think we'll hear more about this theme generally, though, because – you know, the problem with the sort of quality newspaper market, John, is that, you know, Telegraph market leader, the Telegraph side, which makes good, healthy profits, I think 40, 45 million, you know, everyone else is losing money. And you know? we're going to see results from the Guardian Observer coming soon, and we're going to lose a lot of money like we did last year. And, uh, you know, a lot of people will criticize uh, uh, the Guardian Observer for losing money, but. You know, we're owned by a trust and we have a big balance sheet. So there are things that help us to continue to invest in journalism here. Uh, you know, and similarly with the Times titles. And I think once we get a breakout of how that newspaper company, uh, better break out the newspaper company's financials, we, we're going to see maybe 60 million of losses at the Times titles. I mean, I don't know. I mean, we don't know. The account's not very clear. I mean, it could be anywhere between, I don't know, 20 and 80. Uh, 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 you know, so we'll see. So I think we're going to just sort of, What's really becoming clear is how dysfunctional, I think, is probably a fair way to use This the broadsheet market is. It's got four or five players, including the FT, but it's a global paper, but four general interest newspapers, uh, three of whom are losing sort of meaningful sums of cash.
3: And it was once mooted or suggested that the uh, independent might go free, as the uh, Lebedev did with the standard. Is that is that idea entirely dead in the water now, do you think, with the success of the eye?
1: <laughs> I? I think they've got to try something. Uh, we're all... You know, there will be a point. Rupert Murdoch said it was twenty years away. There will be a point where we start printing papers. Certainly, Monday to Friday, right? Uh, uh, you, you can have your own argument as to when it is. I don't think it's in five years' time or ten years' time, but twenty years' time, you know, it could be. So we're all on a, we've all got to move on to the next business model or the next idea, and maybe going free. It worked for the Standard. Uh, um, the trouble is, it's much easier for an evening paper because you've got you know fewer points of distribution, so you need fewer folks giving it out. And the trouble with the uh, for morning paper is obviously, especially with national distribution, or what, you, know, you, you know where do, you know people are not going to sort of stand outside every news agent giving the, the thing away for free. So, you know it's diff, you know it's it's difficult. You have to have a slightly different sort of distribution policy if you're going to if you're going to do it. But they may do, they, they where they've done well they've done well when they've been radical they've done well when they were radical with the standards they were radical with the indie when they made it tabloid that, they were radical when they created the eye that, that's when that company that, that group of people those managers have done well so you know with the indie is there a radical thing they can do or do they just love the paper and want to keep it going uh, that's, the, that's the decision I think the
3: left devs have to make well we'll leave it there my thanks to Dan Saber and Mr. Ollie Mann Television now, and I'm delighted to welcome to the pod the Guardian's TV editor Vicky Frost and Guardian sports columnist Martin Kellner, who's down the line from his 3D home cinema in Leeds. Is that <laughs> right, Martin?
5: It
4: is pretty well a 3D home cinema. Skykey insists on uh, shoving new stuff in all the time, so they've put, in, um, they've put in surround sound. So it is more or less a home cinema, yeah.
3: Well, I'm almost glad to hear that, slightly jealous. Well, <laughs> thanks for joining us. And we start with the Euro 2012 final, which ended 6-1. Not the match itself, you remember, which uh, Spain beat Italy 4-0, but the overnight viewing figures, which revealed that 12.3 million viewers watched it on BBC One, but only 2.2 million on ITV. Now, the BBC traditionally wins this sort of thing when the two go head-to-head, but even by historical standards, this was a a proper thumping. Martin, was the BBC really six times better than ITV this time round?
4: No, not six times better. I think Gary Lineker was possibly five or six times better than Adrian Childs, in my opinion. It, the presentation is awfully difficult for, uh, for ITV. I mean, almost everybody said that during the group games, uh, ITV did very well. And uh, on the punditry front, they had fresh faces in uh, Roy Keane and Jamie Carragher and Roberto Martinez, whereas the BBC stuck with the, you know, with the same old familiar faces, uh, Alan Hansen, Alan Shearer, etc. So a lot of people thought the punditry on ITV was better. I actually have a real problem with the presentation. The the BBC have Gary Lineker, who's a well-established character. He's also, you know, in football, it's often a case of show us your medals. And Gary Lineker, you know, has scored 48 goals for England. Uh, Adrian Charles, as far as I'm aware, hasn't scored any goals for England. I think we have a problem. They've tried in the past to sort of replicate the BBC presentation, get a smoothie, uh, a Steve Ryder-type figure in, and that's never worked. They've gone for Adrian Charles, who's totally different. But again, I don't think the public liked him enough for ITV to even challenge the BBC. I and mean, historically, the BBC always do have a great victory when they go head-to-head in these football matches. But in the past, if we go back to 1970, ITV actually won that year. They had Brian Moore uh, presenting, and they, they invented the panel at that point with people like Malcolm, Malcolm Allison and Brian Clough, outspoken people. Uh, and they can they can take on uh, the BBC, but it's, it's very, very difficult for them.
3: Vicky, as... Um... As Martin said there, you know, he's clearly more of a fan of Lineker than Charles. How about you? Where do you stand on the great debate?
0: Uh, Well, I slightly watch under sufferance, if I'm really honest. I stand on the side of Lineker, but I can't bear the Allens, both of them. They're just, God, they're just annoying. And I didn't really understand why on the final, when when we turned on to BBC One, it looked like they were all wearing funeral suits. It was bizarre. They'd all suddenly put on black suits and ties. It's very odd indeed. Yeah, I think it was a
4: tribute to reservoir dogs, as far as I can
0: see.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you're right, Martin. The BBC lineup—it did feel a bit tired. Uh, you know, Shearer, Mark Lawrence, in particular, came in for some stick on the on the Guardian message boards, for instance. They're all of a very, very sort of, and uh, linicker as well. It's very kind of one-paced, isn't it? They're struggling to get out of second gear.
4: Yeah, I mean, and, uh, I think the problem this year as well was that Alan Shearer had been told to be a little bit more controversial. So he tried to, it's normally sort of chummy golf club chat, but he tried to be more controversial. It didn't really suit him. I I got, you know, there were lots, as you say, on the Guardian message board, and uh, I got emails sent to me. I'm somehow blamed for some of this that happened. And somebody... (laughs) Well, uh, we do
3: hold you responsible entirely. Yeah, they do.
4: And somebody said... um, they described it as a linicous, smug love-in with makeup mad sales rep bully boy Hanson and shiny, grinning peanut Schlemiel Shearer is like being trapped indefinitely around the gaff of every boring, boorish office boss for an extended motivation meeting and tedious team-building drink-up.
3: <laughs> Was <that laughs> A, a child? <laughs> But, I mean, it's hard for ITV because, as we know, you know, they're um, you know they've, they're up against it because they have to have adverts, of course, which pay the bills. But, I mean, what can they do? Should they sort of, as you said, you mentioned 1970 where they did something different and, uh, you know, beat the beep. Should they should they sort of dump the sort of trio of panellists all together and go for something sort of radically different? Or do they risk sort of being, you know, utterly humiliated if they if they sort of go for the radical option?
4: I think they should reinvent themselves. and so That's what they did in 1917. Uh, up until then, it was the same problem. You know, when, when the cup final was on both channels, people watched the BBC, as people will, because, people, you know, they get tired of adverts and things. So I don't know what the reinvention is. I'm not a television producer, but I think they ought to look at that quite seriously for, you know, for when it's going to happen again, whether it will happen again, given that, uh, you know, these protected events are now may possibly uh, not be as protected as they are. Uh, And therefore, you know, they might go just to the highest bidder, uh, in which case it will just a single channel thing and then they won't have the problem. But if they are going to go to head to head head with the BBC on anything, they really, really have to reinvent it. So they offer a genuine alternative.
3: Uh, Vicky, more TV now. We've got the newsroom coming up, which is the latest project from uh, Aaron Sorkin.
0: Yes, that's right. Uh, And that starts next week on Sky Atlantic again. So, uh, well, I don't know. If, If you've seen sort of any reviews of this from the States, you will know it's taken a bit of a pasting. Critically, but I think actually it's quite a watchable thing, although massively flawed. Uh, yeah, definitely massively <laughs> flawed, but equally quite watchable, and I quite enjoyed it. So it stars Jeff Daniels and Emily Mortimer, um, and Jeff Daniels is uh, Will McAvoy, who is um, a news uh, TV news anchor, and uh, Emily Mortimer is basically his ex. Uh, yes, that I have my own feelings about that. Also, a brilliant television producer. And together, they're effectively going on a crusade to make TV news kind of less about ratings and more about what voters need to hear and responsible news. That's effectively what it is. You can imagine there are quite a lot of speeches in this about the importance of proper news. I found those got slightly tiresome after a while. I don't know how much I need Aaron talking to really hammer home the fact that the news is a bit rubbish and we should have better news. It, I'm very conflicted about it, basically, in that I very happily sat and watched lots of episodes of it back to back, um, and there are some really beautiful one-liners, as you'd expect from a sulking drama. I kind of like that uh, the the whole setup. I don't like that the cat, the female characters are quite weak and basically either a bit dizzy or slightly incompetent. And you know that I, I sort of feel like really we're still there. Can we? You know, we must move on from that. You know. And, and I don't like all the preaching, but so it's apart, apart from from that, all that, it's I love winner. it. But but actually, there is enough still there to really keep me watching.
3: Martin, are you looking forward to this? As a, I'm guessing, you're a, a western man, possibly. But did, did the studio on the sunset strip put you off?
4: Yeah, I was looking forward to it. I'm not I'm not, sure <laughs> not that, anymore. Not sure. Not sure I, I think I might take it off the planner. On. Uh, working through my box set of thirty rock, whichever. Yeah, that, that's the problem, you know. You, they they all sound mouth-watering these uh, American things that Sky Atlantic are bringing over, but it's getting around I mean, I haven't even watched Veep yet, and I've got uh, two or three episodes of that. Uh, recorded, so but I mean it does uh, as you say. You know it can't be totally uninteresting if it's an Aaron Sorkin uh, drama, and I you know I'm a sucker for things set in newsrooms of any sort, you know, radio, television, or, or, or newspapers.
3: That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Martin and Vicky, as well as our other guests Dan Saber, Ollie Mann, and Lorraine Hegassy. Please leave us your comments on what you've just heard on our blog or our Facebook wall. Alternatively, tweet me at John Plunkett one four nine. Media Talks produced by Matt Hill and Jason Phipps. Thanks for listening.
0: For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.
1: Guardian podcasts are partnered with audible.co.uk. For a free download, be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash audible, where Guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free. See the page for more details.